I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, does college really prepare you for the working world? Really, most of what education is, is it's a passport to the world of the real training. So you go and spend all these years studying stuff you don't need to know, finally get your diploma, and then this allows you to get a job where they actually teach you how to do a job. Which means we might be living through a time of rampant degree inflation. You need to give more education now to get the same job that your parents or grandparents could have gotten with a lot less. We have a lot more taxi drivers and waiters that have college degrees now. Then conversations on the internet can be brutal. And one website had a huge hand in shaping those conversations. In this age of what is free speech, what is hateful, when Reddit was started, they basically had a simple idea like, we don't need editors in high towers to tell us what's good. People can determine that. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes your assumptions have to be turned upside down just to see if they fall apart. And that's what we're about to do. Though this may sound like heresy, Brian Kaplan argues the big problem with our education system is we've got way too much education. Kaplan is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he's the author of the book The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Now, we've all heard that people with college degrees way out-earn those with high school degrees. A few years ago, the gap hit a record high. People who finished college earned 56% more than those who didn't. Some experts worry that the options for those without college degrees are dwindling, while the folks at the top are racking up money and opportunities. Brian Kaplan isn't one of those experts. Brian, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So my first question is, uh, you've spent a long time in school. Um, When did this notion first occur to you that maybe as a country we have too much education? I mean, this is going to sound hard to believe, but even in kindergarten, I was quite confused (laughs) by what was going on because we had to study all these subjects where I would say, well, when will I ever use this? I don't understand. And adults would just tell me, well, you needed to get a good job. But then, you know, the longer I stayed in school, the more confused I got. And I said, like, like, why would this stuff pay off? Why would studying something that you're never going to use so, you know, be, be so important for success in the modern world? Mm-hmm. Why is it you've got to do three or four years of foreign language and then not even learn it and then you know, like, and see <laughs> that doors are closed to you unless you do it? it just it was, it was, So at least the doubts were there for, for almost as long as I can remember. Okay. So – but let me ask you the obvious question. You went to school. Something about what was going on in school interested you. You kept going. You went to college. You got a PhD. You teach now economics. Um, if if education worked out so well for you, why do you think other people should be doing less of it? Right. Well, I mean, the whole heart of my book is to say there's a big difference between the effect of your education on your life and the effect of education on society. So it's true that uh, you know doing well in school opens up a lot of doors. But the question that I ask in the case against education is why? And what I say is most of it is not that you're learning useful skills that are going to actually raise your productivity. Rather, I say the main reason why school pays is that you're jumping through hoops to impress employers. And so if you do really well, then then you you come out at the end of the hoops and you go, ta-da, look at me, I've got a PhD from Princeton. And employers pay attention to that. But again, the problem socially is that the more education people have, the more you need to not have your application thrown away. 
So in the book, I spent a lot of time talking about what's called credential inflation, how you need to give more education now to get the same job that your parents or grandparents could have gotten with a lot less. And that seems to really hold up. So it's not just that we have more scientists and computer programmers. We have a lot more taxi drivers and waiters that have college degrees now. And it seems like those degrees, you know, especially for waiters, they open up jobs at better restaurants. But do we really have better waiters than we did in 1950? I wonder... To what degree you feel, you know, people always quote these statistics exactly like I did at the beginning saying like people who have college degrees make so much more money than people without college degrees. I wonder how much that is a function of that people who get, and I really genuinely don't know the answer to this question, that people who go into college are richer people, like come from richer families than people who tend not to go to college. And so they would have more money in any scenario. Yeah, I mean, like your intuition's right. So the people that go to college and do well in college tend to be people who are good students in high school, and they probably would have been able to get better jobs eventually anyway. But what's really distinctive about my book is that I say, all right, sure, let's go and take that away, and let's look only at the actual genuine causal effect of your education on your career. But I said, even then, that doesn't mean that that education causes you to make more money because you have more skills. It could also cause you to make more money because you're impressing employers with uh, these credentials. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, like think, think about it this way. Uh, suppose that you could get a fake Harvard diploma, but it's ironclad. No one will ever question it. Okay. I say that is very likely to raise your earnings, open up a lot of doors. It's not an illusion. It really does actually open doors, but it's not because you learned anything there, because in my example, you didn't actually go. You didn't learn anything. You were never at Harvard. But still, just that piece of paper can go and open doors and help your career. Yeah, but you could argue that, like... If somebody is impressed by your fake Harvard diploma, believing that it's a real Harvard diploma, what they're impressed by is the is the idea that you did learn something and that you are a a smart person who got into Harvard. I mean, those things are all wrong because you're a fraud, but it's not crazy to assume that somebody who went to Harvard is a smart person. Oh, right, right. I mean, again, there's the difference between looking at the Harvard diploma and saying this person's smart and looking at the Harvard diploma and saying Harvard made them smart. Right. So, so in other words, you know, it could be that a smart person who just drops out of uh, or doesn't go to college and gets a job will immediately do well. That's possible. Another possibility is that they go to school and they actually get a lot of job skills. That's possible. And another one, though, is that you go to school and when you finish, employers say, well, you didn't really learn any job skills there, but it would take a pretty special person to finish and do so well. Hmm. So let's make that person a job offer. It's these three different stories that people so often jumble together. And really what I try to do in the book is to separate them so clearly that people just can't mix them up anymore and then investigate each one separately. So let's back way up. Let's assume lawmakers came to you and they said, you know, you maybe you're right about all this education not being that useful. Maybe we are wasting our money. If we wanted more people to succeed, more people to have better lives, uh, more people to have, you know, good and stable careers, how should we spend our money? What like what should the education system look like? What should we be doing with 8-year-olds and 18-year-olds? Right. Well, I mean, there's the easy answer, and then I'll give you some more details. So, again, okay. you know, like the quick answer I would just say is less. Like we're spending way too much on this. And again, you know, we go and we look and we see that if one more person goes to college, they have a better career and say that shows that it works. But I say that doesn't show that it works. You need to show that if you send a whole generation to college, the whole generation does better. 
And that's what I say we are definitely not witnessing right now. It's not that it's a great time in the economy because of the amount of education. Really, what we're seeing is there's a big difference in success between people with, educa- with, with more education and, and with less. But what we also see is that you need a lot of education now even to get fairly menial jobs. It used to be the idea that a secretary would need a college degree. This would have seemed crazy to people. And now, if you're entry level, it's almost required uh, to, you know, just to be a secretary. Mm-hmm. So this is one where we can actually do more with less, right? And you know, that's, that's where I always start. And I would start there especially because it's such an unpopular thing to say. I'm almost the only one saying it. So I feel like I've got to because no one else will. Cut education funding. Yeah, not your, not your common mantra in like political campaigns. Right. Like, get, let's, yeah, cut education. Yeah, just, just you know, cut it and get people have people start life at an earlier age. You know, if someone were to say, all right, well, you know, be more constructive. Uh, you know, so in the book, I also have a chapter on vocational education, which I think is greatly underrated. I mean, I think it's underrated just in terms of how good it is for people's careers because, you know, we're just so snobbish about things. But I think more importantly, it's just underrated from a social point of view because, you know, the thing about vocational education is it really does build skills, right? You know, you go to plumbing classes and you really learn how to be a plumber. And I say that's why it's better than say, learning a foreign language that you're never going to use on a job, because at least the resources the taxpayer spent training to be a plumber lead you to have more skills that you're going to use. Whereas you know, the foreign language classes, virtually zero people in America even claim to speak a foreign language very well in school. Mm-hmm. It really is just a sinkhole of resources in that case. So, so all right, two things there. One is, I guess you're saying I would say to lawmakers, if they said, here's this pot of money that we currently spend on education, it sounds like you're saying, take a much bigger chunk of that pot of money and put it towards vocational education. So yeah, don't ab- don't tell people just, you know, go out on the street and see what you can do, but, but learn some real skills and maybe take fewer history and French classes. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so you know, that that's right. And then something that I think there's a lot more people interested in, but... Uh, I'll say it too, is just the basic reading, reading, writing, and math skills of Americans are shockingly low when you look at the numbers. And it seems very likely that if you just spent more time teaching that stuff to people who haven't mastered it yet, that would be a big payoff uh, for society, Mm -hmm. right? So my my sons are studying Spanish right now, but when, when I talk to them about how poor the reading and writing skills of the average American are, they're like, well, why are people learning a second language when they can't do their first? And I'm like, yeah, you know, from the mouths of babes, you've got that right. Yeah, so, you know, like, you know, don't start trying to teach a second language until people can competently read and write. So, all right, so let me speak on behalf of foreign language teachers who I can just hear, like, in their cars <laughs> rising up and, and being concerned. For some languages, I can understand French, German. I mean, I love French personally, but I, I realize that it's not a, a lot of use to me as I'm going about my day. But Spanish, not only do tons of countries speak Spanish, and so, like, you can imagine if you were in business and you were trading with different countries, like, that could be very helpful to learn Spanish. There's also tons of people in America who speak Spanish, and those, that, like, open, those are markets, you know, like, if, if you, again, work for a business or you sell something or you're in journalism— the ability to speak Spanish, I, doctors, the ability to speak, or nurses, the ability to speak to patients in Spanish. It seems like certain languages, there's a ton of use for those things. It, is that so? Here, here's that? the key thing: you have to actually learn it. And hmm. we've got numbers on how successful American foreign language education is on actually causing foreign language fluency. 
And the answer is less than 1% of Americans even claim to have learned to speak any foreign language very well in school. And this is, of course, their own self-report. So people tend to overstate how much they actually, how good they actually are. Mm. And, then, and again, this is not because we spend five weeks on foreign language. You know, it's standard in American high schools to require two or three years. State of California, where I grew up now, you need three years for any of the state colleges. So this is one where we put many years in with almost no results. Mm. So, I mean, even if the languages were really helpful, we would just say, yeah, well, the, it would be great if the schools could teach it, but they put, a, put in a lot of effort and they don't. So... There is a lot of waste going on right now. Hmm. Again, you could always say, well, let's, you know, let's figure out how to teach it right. And I say, yeah, that sounds good. But given that they've been wasting so much money for so many years, I just don't trust them. And hmm. we, no one should trust them. They should first get their act together, show that they, in fact, can cause fluency in, in three years, and then maybe consider restoring their funding. So it's not that knowing Spanish or knowing Mandarin, it doesn't have a lot of potential applicability. It's just you're not confident yeah. we I mean, can you know, transmit Mandarin I mean, to so, kids. Yeah. So I'd say you know, like you know, Mandarin or Japanese are probably going to give you a bigger payoff in the labor market than Spanish. The main issue with Spanish is there's so many people who learn it fluently in the home that the jobs that require Spanish are going to go to them first. Mm-hmm. And you know, that makes sense. It's better to go and get someone who can speak it really well mm-hmm. and learn it easily than to go and spend years teaching someone else without the same upbringing, the, you know, the language. It's just, you know, it's just so hard to do it. If we were to switch away from the kind of general education that we have now, do you worry that, like, fewer people will read Shakespeare? And, uh, you know, that tells us, Shakespeare tells us a lot about human relationships and what motivates people, or fewer people are going to take history classes and they're not going to know about the American Revolution or the Civil War or the era of Jim Crow, and that, like, they're going to be missing big chunks of our history. I just wonder if you worry about that sort of thing. Well, in a sense I do, because I think it would be better if people actually knew this stuff. However, right now people spend many years allegedly studying this stuff, and yet when you test adults, they know next to nothing. So if you just go and ask Americans, like, what century was the Civil War fought in? Probably under half of Americans can even tell you the century of the Civil War. When you go and just look at how little American adults know, it is puzzling, I'll admit. And then, you know, there's a few possibilities. One is that they never learned it. Hmm. Possible. Another one is that they just forgot it after the test, which I think is another thing that's going on. So it may very well be that on the day of the final exam, people knew a good amount about the Civil War, but they don't retain it. Right. And again, you know, this, this is one of the best established facts in psychology. People forget what they do not practice, and they forget it at a high rate. Any adult listening to this, if you really just think about your own educational experience, how much of what you've studied do you still remember? Mm-hmm. It's just so low. So again, when people say, aren't you worried about a, a, living in an historically illiterate society? So it's, yeah, I'm in one. <laughs> so yeah, I'm worried. But I'm not worried that my reforms are going to make things noticeably worse because we're near zero. We're going to take a quick break and come back and talk more with Brian Kaplan, a professor of economics at George Mason University. He's the author of The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. And when we return, more about what a reimagined system might look like, what employers really want, and whether colleges are actually starting to lose their power in the marketplace. In the meantime, if you're nodding along like, finally, somebody is making sense, or if your head is exploding because how could not knowing American history be a step in the right direction, email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. You can also tweet us. I'm at Kara E. Miller. The show is at iHubRadio. We want to know what you think and why you think it. 
Brian Kaplan has a theory, and it's this. A lot fewer Americans should go to college. Why? Well, a few reasons. For one... People learn on the job. People learn on the job. So really most of what education is, is it's a passport to the world of the real training. So you go and spend all these years studying stuff you don't need to know, finally get your diploma, and then this allows you to get a job where they actually teach you how to do a job. Another reason is that most of us don't remember what we learned in school, and most of that information hasn't been part of our jobs anyway. Kaplan, a professor of economics at George Mason University, believes we're living in a time of rampant degree inflation, where employers want to see degrees just to see them, not because they necessarily prove anything. Even in a profession like software engineering, where you'd think, well, you could just put your skills on display, whether or not you've earned a diploma, that's not exactly how it works. It's just deviant to not go to college, and then firms are very reluctant to go and hire the self-taught programmers, at least for the good jobs. Kaplan is the author of the book The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. And he'll admit, as right as he thinks he is, it doesn't mean employers agree with him. So again, actually another sign that a lot of the reason why education pays is not that you're learning skills, but that you are getting credentials, is that most of the payoff for college comes from graduation. So you could do 3.999 years, right? You're one Aristotle class short of graduation, and still all the jobs where you need a college degree don't open up for you, and yet you do that one last Aristotle class, and then, you know, it's like the clouds open up. Oh, right, right, no, right. there's great jobs for you available. And that's probably the, you know, the very biggest issue is people often go and compare people who successfully finish college to people that don't try. And I say, you know, like you want you want to go and compare people who try to get a degree to people who don't try and then see how that works out for them. Hmm. I often compare this to evaluating the profitability of a bank by looking at how much money you make on the loans that get repaid. It's like, yeah, well, you probably want to look at the loans that don't get repaid before you decide that your bank's doing well. So is there any sign that that kind of, you know, when you say like you can have done all your college classes up until about April 15th of graduation year, and then and then you decide, yeah, yeah I'm done with this. This is stupid. Even if you got A's on everything, but you never finish those final classes, you just never complete them, uh, and you don't get that degree, you know, it, it could be that everything you've worked for, all these doors start to close, even though we could all agree that, like, well, you've done almost all the learning that there, ha- you know, that you were going to do in your college career. There's only a month left. And I I just wonder, could we be moving towards more of a credential system? I remember talking to Sal Khan years ago, who started Khan Academy, and he talked about maybe in the future, we'd be heading towards people really looking at individual, like, modular credentials you have. Right, like Like, micro badges. Yeah, like, I know how to do C++ programming, or I know this, or I know that. Not, like, you know, I went to UVA, period. Yeah, so that kind of thing already exists to some degree, but there's no sign that it is even taking much of a dent out of regular higher education. So almost 10 years ago, I actually had a bet with some professors who were worried that they were going to lose their jobs. So, all right, let's have a bet that the share of 18 to 24-year-old Americans that are enrolled in traditional four-year colleges will fall by no more than 10%. So basically, I win if there's if there, if it stays the same or there's a moderate fall. And they would win if there's more than a 10% fall in the share of young Americans attending four-year colleges. Were they worried about the rise of credentialing? Is that what they were concerned about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, okay. they were worried that the online education is going to put them out gotcha. of business, basically. 
All right, so as we stand right now, the, for the last available year, actually the share of young Americans that are in traditional four-year colleges is even higher than when the bet started. Mm. All right. Now, what in the world is going on? Why is it that traditional four-year colleges are doing so well when online education seems superior in so many ways? And my story here is that a lot of what you are getting the credential for, a lot of what you are convincing employers of with your college degree, is just that you're a conformist sheep, that you're doing what society expects of you. You know, think about it, like who's the first. The, you, know, like, you know, like if you're a parent and you and you have the kids say, you know, who could do well in college, but they say, you know what, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do Khan Academy instead. You know, almost all parents would go, ay, 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 no, don't do that, right? Because you're going to be jumping into the pool of all the other people who are just who aren't doing it because they just refuse to, to conform to social norms. And there's no I in team, and that means that businesses don't want to go and hire someone who someone has extreme conformity problems. Mm. So you know, my story is a lot of the stability of the education system just comes from the fact you're not just showing you're smart. You're not just showing that you're a hard worker. You're also showing that you are a conformist who's willing to submit to social norms and social expectations. And again, employers are not dumb to care about this. I know a lot of people who are smart, who are hardworking, but they're defiant. And I love these people. They're some of my best friends, but I do not wish to employ these defiant people. <laughs> they're, just too, they're just too hard to deal with. You know, they're fun. But... They do not work well with others. And if you're running a business, that's important to you. Like, you can't just have the genius who does whatever he feels like. It just doesn't work. Let me go back to the vision that you have, even if right now it's a kind of, um, like, for you, a kind of utopian vision that isn't about to be realized. But, like, assuming every governor in the country is tuning in, um, you know, would you track people? Like, you know, Germany, for example, tracks kids pretty early on, would you sort of early on say, well, you know, I think it's better for you to head towards a trade school and I think it's better for you to do this. And like, how would this work in practice? Yeah, definitely. So the German system is uh, much misunderstood in the United States. It's not really true that they actually give you a test. And then if you get a lower score, say, you know, tough talk for you, you're going to be a minor. There actually is flexibility. And if your parents say, I don't like the fact that you're not letting him do the academics uh, because of the test, let him go. The German system does allow you to do that. It's not actually nearly as rigid as Americans think. But again, you know, like the basic idea of trying to get a reasonable prediction about what someone likes and is good at, and then training them for that from, from a young age uh, you know, makes a lot of sense to me. The most sensible objection to vocational education people have is when you're 12, it's too young to say you're going to be an auto worker. You, you, know, you need to explore. Uh -huh. And I say, you know, that's great. But how about we go and explore 20 realistic options for two weeks each when you're 12 years old and then start trying to narrow it down rather than teaching everybody to be a future poet or historian or scientist, uh, you know, doing that through all through middle school and high school, even when we know that the odds are astronomically low for many kids that that will ever happen. You know, so, of course, you know, Americans love the story of the one person that no one thought could succeed, who then somehow wins a Nobel Prize. And, you know, those are great stories, but you can't live your life that way. At least it doesn't make sense to try to live your life that way. You've got to go and try to get a forecast of what's likely to occur. I realize that you know, it's, there's a great hit to the pride of America to say, look, well, we think this kid isn't going to be president and you know, maybe he should be a mechanic. But again, if you actually care about the kids, you got to swallow your pride and say, look, let's go with the numbers. Well, it sounds like you're saying uh, 
for example, to use the Germany example, that you you like the idea of kind of tracking people earlier, maybe with some flexibility in it, but but earlier on saying maybe you're headed in vocational direction if if that's what you like. Um, and I have to say, I mean, you know, as somebody who has done a lot of stories on um, – uh, sort of uh, high-tech manufacturing, Germany is often pointed out as a place that produces people who work in manufacturing, and nevertheless, those people make sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year because they are so knowledgeable about the manufacturing they do, they can do very, like, highly skilled manufacturing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, like another big lesson of psychology is that people get good at things by practicing the very things they're going to do. So the idea that you can go and study poetry for years and then this will expand your mind and teach you how to learn and then you'll become a great mechanic is just nonsense. <laughs> the way you become a great mechanic is by doing mechanics. The way you be, you know, like, like, just like the way you become a great poet is by writing poetry and like, a lot of it bad until you until you improve. So there is sort of like, like a recurring thing that I hear from other economists saying, oh, well, the German system, it's not as good because it doesn't teach people general skills. And how we say, look, the American system is terrible at teaching these general skills. If you just look at like you know reading and writing and math, and then most of the other stuff that we're teaching, you know, like foreign language is not a general skill. You know, poetry is not a general skill. It's a highly specific skill for a job almost nobody has. You know, even though the future is uncertain, it still makes sense to try to train people for a reasonable guess of the future. If there's one thing we know about the future, it's that poetry will not be a major occupation. <laughs> not that we know about anyway. <laughs> I'll just go and put a lot of money saying there's no, no way 10% of Americans are going to become paid poets in the future. Like, no way. Do you worry at all that it, it, it leads to this kind of bifurcation where, like, people who don't have as much money do practical things and people who have a lot of money study poetry? Or maybe that is already the case. Yeah, well, I just say it's already the case. I mean, sometimes people say, wouldn't this cause a class society? And like, look around. We're in a class society. It's really a question of what is the most sensible way to go and spend taxpayer resources here. And then, of course, part of that is trying to figure out what could actually be practically done. I mean, so I say one thing that practically can be done is just reducing the number of kids who end up in jail. You know, I say that's the worst part of our class society. You know, it's right to me people get worked up over like there's a certain there's these billionaires and that's bad. Like, how about like all the people who are in jail? Since you wrote The Case Against Education, have you heard from any politicians or people in positions of power who have given you any sense that this is interesting to them and they would consider baby steps towards a monumental change in education? Right. So I've heard from quite a few uh, actually very influential people who don't want me to name them saying okay. they think it's interesting. Uh, but <laughs> that doesn't mean they're going to do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I rem remember once I gave a talk with a prominent education politician or slash bureaucrat. You know, the person was engaged. And yet, you know, the next day on Twitter, saying the same usual stuff. So, all right, well, I mean, if, if I had an effect, it's a, it is a covert effect. <laughs> By the way, so you, know, you, you mentioned you know, a lot of these ideas being utopian. I mean, what I tell people is, look, I'd be happy if my book caused education spending to be cut by 1%. If I could do that, that would be, in my mind, a miraculous achievement to have moved the education budget of the whole United States by 1%. But wouldn't that money have to go towards something, like just cutting the money and spending it on, I don't know, 
you know, gleaming glass towers wouldn't be enough. Like, wouldn't you want the money toward to go towards something you thought was effective for those kids? Well, let's see. I mean, I don't know why. So, you know, like, it may be that we just don't have anything that's more effective for the kids. This is, you know, a, a general point about personal finance. If you find out that you're wasting your money on, say, a toenail fungus cream, this does not mean that you should then go and, and spend it on some other toenail fungus remedy. Maybe none of them are very good. Right? You know, why not just do an open-minded reconsideration of where the money goes? So psychologist Daniel Kahneman talks about mental budgeting. It's this idea that money should only be moved within an account. And I don't see why. So, you know, like to me, like an obvious thing is just deficit reduction. You know, like, you know, like we've got severe deficits as far as the eye can see. Um, like, you know, like we are uh, going to going to reach a severe financial crisis if we keep doing what we're doing. So, you know, like any any way that we can just go and get that deficit down seems to me to be a good idea. Finally, uh, do you think your own kids are going to go to college or maybe you already have kids that are that age? Well, my older two sons want to be professors. <laughs> so they see they see my job and they say, yeah, this looks like a great, great, great gig. So again, well, like, like I just try to be very honest with my kids and say, in school, you have to learn a lot of stuff that in real life you're never going to use again. However, the way the world works is that if you don't do well on the in these seemingly meaningless tasks, the uh, like the labor market will hold it against you. And certainly if you want to be a professor, there's a very rigid path that you have to follow if you want to go and get a job, which, you know, which is the one that I followed. And again, you know, like, you know, what I'll say is, look, you're my kids, so I'm going to give you advice for how you can succeed in this unfair world. I'm not going to go and tell you to throw yourself on your swords uh, for the sake of, of you know, like making some token change to the degree of credential inflation. So like my older kids, uh, definitely. For my younger kids, you know, like I'll try to advise them the same way I would advise anyone based upon what is best for them as an individual. So, you know, a lot of it is, you know, if they're doing well in high school, then they're likely to be able to graduate from college. And then I think it makes a makes a great career sense for them to do it. You know, on the other hand, if they're getting C's and D's in high school, then I really will be saying, all right, well, this isn't working for you. I think we got to, after I tell you to work harder for the 10th time and you don't, then maybe we need to go and look at some vocational options and see if we can find something you like and are good at. Because I don't, I don't believe in, in just uh, supporting kids for the whole lives uh, in, in my basement. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm old school enough to be against that. Got I know it. there's some other parents that are cool with it, but I'm not. <laughs> Brian Kaplan is professor of economics at George Mason University. He's the author of the book, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Brian, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. As I mentioned earlier, we would love to hear your take on whether fewer Americans should go to college. Brilliant idea? Dumbest thing you've ever heard? Let us know. You can email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org, or you can tweet at us. We're at iHubRadio. We'll also have more on our website about micro-credentialing, which some hope will be a way to cobble together an education more cheaply, quickly, and easily. That's at innovationhub.org. It's hard to say whether this is a story of success or failure, but it's a story that has touched your life. It's sort of a mirror of everything online. I like to think of it as a mirror of the Internet. Christine Legorio chafkin is a senior writer at the magazine Inc. and someone who has spent years covering one particular website, one you may or may not pay any attention to. But it's a site that has acted like a canary in a coal mine when it comes to the rise of populism, debates over free speech, and hate speech online. 
and the increasing power of foreign governments to reach out and touch us through our browsers. Yeah, well, the thing I would say about Reddit, first and foremost, is even if you think you're not a user, you've probably encountered it within the last month or two, just in internet searching and the way you browse. You have certainly seen content that comes from Reddit. It has more than 330 million monthly users, racking up more than 20 billion page views. These people type in more than 50,000 words every single minute. Legorio Chafkin says this is a story she couldn't resist. And it's one she chronicles in the book, We Are the Nerds, The Birth and Tumultuous Rise of Reddit, the Internet's Culture Laboratory. And there within it are message boards for everything under the sun, 140,000 communities, everything from one for women called 2X chromosomes to stop smoking and rehab communities. There's financial advice communities, home improvement. There are great stories on a subreddit, as these sections are called, r slash T-I-F-U, or today I uh, messed up. (laughs) Great stories from individuals. And, you know, there's also things like videos and images. Every meme on the mainstream internet probably was germinated within Reddit. Um, And even during the presidential campaign last time, we saw Donald Trump sharing things, sharing memes that first originated on Reddit. But we'll get back to politics, which Legorio Chafkin says she should have paid a lot more attention to when she was researching Reddit in 2015 and 2016. First, before all that, you've got to go way back to the early 2000s, long before Reddit was one of the most popular websites in the world, before Reddit even existed. When two nerds met, Alexis Ohanian and Steve Huffman, they would both go on to become incredibly rich and powerful people. Alexis would marry a tennis player named Serena Williams. But that was all way in the future in 2001 when Ohanian and Huffman met at the University of Virginia. I think, you know, literally the first day they moved into their dorm rooms, Alexis saw Steve playing a video game and thought, oh, there's hope for my social life at this college. You know, someone is doing the thing I love. And they became fast friends. They were very different people. Alexis was always sort of social and charismatic and easy to to smile and make friends. Steve was a little more of an introvert, a programmer who um, made, you know, wry jokes and some sometimes could rub people the wrong way, but clearly a very smart guy. By senior year, Alexis thought he wanted to go into nonprofits, and Steve thought, I want to start a little company. I want to make Mm. a dent in the world. And he kind of infected Alexis with that idea. Um, Together, they had an idea for making a mobile food ordering company. They called it My Mobile Menu, abbreviated as Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. They took this idea to, I mean, this is before Seamless Web existed, you know, before any of the food ordering. We didn't really have apps on our cell phones then. And they took it to a venture capitalist who would, was, would not call himself a venture capitalist at the time, named Paul Graham. He had sold a company. He had a lot of money sitting around, and he wanted to start investing. Ohanian and Huffman traveled from Virginia to Massachusetts to pitch Graham. They told him about their food ordering idea. Graham didn't like it, but he liked them. After all, what if they were the next Jobs and Wozniak, the next Gates and Allen? And Graham had an idea. How about a site where you could vote on what stories or news of the day were the most interesting? An internet popularity contest. That, he thought, could change the game. 
And Paul saw this as a potential for being kind of the front page of the internet, a place where you could just navigate to in the morning and see all the internet's most glorious content of the day, whether it's a politics story or a science journal or someone's personal blog that's just super enlightening. And he said, why don't you guys try to build the front page of the internet? And they thought about it and they said, sure, you know, we will do that. Um, And they immediately started building Reddit. Do you feel like, you know, we, we talked about Reddit being kind of in some ways this online popularity contest, a kind of very flat site where there's not a lot of hierarchy. Um, do you think that the people behind it, really their vision for the web was a kind of, if not anarchy, a kind of completely democratized situation in which, you know, there just wasn't a hierarchy. You know, people were kind of equal yeah. and whatever they wanted to say, they said. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good way of putting it. It's often misunderstood in this age of what is free speech? What is, what are we allowed to say online? What is hateful? But when Reddit was started, they basically had a simple idea like, we don't need editors in high towers to tell us what's good. People can determine that. People are smart. People are empathetic. They can upvote what they want to. So it was the elimination of editors and the democratization of the flow of content. Now that got taken to an extreme within just mere years where people were really pushing the limits of what what that meant. Um, there was a lot more profanity and cursing and pornography on Reddit than anywhere else on sort of the, the bright, shiny social web um, that we know. And, you know, one of the first communities that Steve Huffman had created was NSFW, Not Safe for Work. And you can mm-hmm. imagine what that turned into. And that sort of content is still about 10% of what Reddit is today, by my estimation. When, when Reddit became this place where people could say anything, there are a lot of things that were really objectionable that people were saying and posting and, you know, visuals. And do you – how do you think that that impacted the rest of the internet? And like were other websites trying to model themselves after it? How did this one website, even if you don't go on it, how did it end up changing the ecosystem in which it lived? I think that, you know, during that time, I'm not sure how influential those kind of portions of Reddit were. I would say during the, that time, the the rest of the Internet started to learn that Reddit was a place where memes and content and really highly shareable popular stuff grew. We saw before um, the election of Donald Trump the rise of a massive community of Trump supporters on Reddit. At the date of the election, it was about 300,000 subscribers to a subreddit called r slash the Donald. I wrote about it on the day of the election for the New York Times. And, you know, when I started the article, I didn't think the outcome was going to be what it was. Hmm. Uh, But it's and and I actually predicted that it would sort of um, once President Trump was no longer the underdog, that his sort of underdog community would just would just kind of. It just flame out. It would just sort of disappear. But that's not true at all. It has continued to gain steam. And it is more than, you know, 500,000 subscribers now. And that community, when it began, it was a lot of it was a lot of the same kind of wall building rhetoric um, that you hear from the president. But it was also Islamophobic and just racist. And these things were allowed. I mean, these things were explicitly allowed. And um, there's a lot of hate speech. And it was very much an overlap community to things that had that Reddit had already started to crack down on, such as r slash Coontown, which was a horribly racist subreddit. And and things some users crossed over to alt-right subreddits as well. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Christine Legorio Chafkin, a senior writer at Inc., author of the book, We Are the Nerds, The Birth and Tumultuous Life of Reddit, the Internet's Culture Laboratory. So let's just talk for a second about um, the the Trump um, uh, support on Reddit. Uh, let me ask you, when did you start to notice, that, you know, before the election, when did yeah. you start to notice that he had a big following on Reddit? And I wonder if you can, like, contrast that with, I assume Hillary Clinton had a following on Reddit. Maybe that's wrong. But maybe well, can politics, you contrast yeah. that, like, the two yeah. different followings? So Reddit had classically been known as more of a kind of grassroots sort of political effort, a place to – like, hmm, I would say the bi- biggest campaigns on Reddit had been Bernie was huge and Barack Obama had a great support on Reddit early on. Um, he did an AMA while campaigning also. An AMA is Ask Me Anything. It is Reddit's kind of brightest and shiniest product. It is what celebrities go on Reddit to do. It is what authors go on to public- publicize their books. Anyone can ask them a question under sort of an official username and they answer. I would say it's more like a, a counterintuitive or underdog candidate has always had a little bit more of a following on Reddit. So so to see a, a Trump support page grow very early in his campaign, I don't actually recall when I encountered it because I have gone back and researched simply every iteration of it and all of its growth. And in the book, there's a very detailed account of how it gained its following and how mm. which communities latched onto it and how it became this conglomeration of different groups, including former Bernie Sanders supporters, including folks who had subscribed to formerly racist subreddits. And it was a fascinating growth story that one of the Reddit employees who ran Reddit's community team referred to as uh, admirable and balletic at one point because its moderators were so highly coordinated. So while, you know, Reddit's leadership does not love the politics of r slash the Donald, it has watched it grow and grow and kept it kind of within the site's rules most of the time, or at least, you know, it thinks that this this community is walking the right line. Hmm. And, you know, Steve Hoffman, now back at Reddit as the CEO, has said, well, you know, one of the things the First Amendment is there to protect is political speech. That is the thing it was designed to protect. And we don't see a reason to cut off this community. I mean, this is a place where political speech is thriving. Now it's a difficult place to police, of course, in this era where political speech and hate speech can literally be synonymous. So, you know, you said there were like 300,000 people yeah. supporting um, Donald Trump before the election. And this, this just kind of gets to the question of the impact of Reddit outside of its own website. That's a lot of people, but this is a country of more than 300 million people, so it's not that many people. Um, right, right. And you see communities on Facebook that are larger, too. Right. right. So, so what do you feel like that community impacted the actual election itself, which clearly did indeed, you know, when you elect a president, of course, that changes the country. I spoke with Steve Hoffman, who had returned recently as CEO of Reddit uh, two weeks after the election, I think maybe 10 days after. And it was just a really remarkable conversation. I said, did you see it coming? And he said, I should have seen it coming because he had been Mm. closely watching this community. And he said he's not he was not surprised um, anymore. And I, I thought I thought that was remarkable. Um, he, I said, do you think it had an effect on the election? And he said, I think we are at a place where we don't have no effect. So 
I mean, yeah. You didn't want to take I, too much uh, responsibility <laughs> for shaping the country. Right, right, right. Um, I do think he feels there is there is uh, an influence there. He sees the spread of this content all over the internet. But conspiracy theories like Pizzagate, Reddit was a really big hub of that. And I should say Pizzagate was like this conspiracy theory that some Democrats were running a child sex ring um, out of a D.C. pizza parlor. Yeah. Um, and, and Reddit did cut it off, I think, right before the actual violence occurred there. Um, but it... Those things were all sort of related to to these Trump communities, and that's what's kind of disconcerting. Let me ask you a broader question about the tech world. Um, people who aren't in it might think a lot about the kind of moral quandaries surrounding tech, whether it's privacy or uh, the influence of foreign actors or hate speech. Um, but do you think for the people who are in the tech world, the bottom line at the end of the day is like the bottom line and that what really matters is if you can make money – that's what it's all about. Oof. Well, I actually, being a, a tech reporter, um, I've reported for Inc. for uh, nearly a decade now and um, have certainly looked at the intersection of culture and technology before that. You know, I report on Facebook and Twitter as well and uh, Pinterest and Instagram. And wow, compared to some of those companies, uh, I I don't think that, that Steve Huffman and Alexis Ohanian sort of fit that model. Um, they haven't brought the company public yet. They do not have outsized salaries. Um, they lead, well, Alexis does not lead a normal life anymore, but that is due to separate circumstances. <laughs> That's due to the fact that he married Serena Williams. He lives in Florida with her and, and their daughter and, you know, travels the globe also with her. So that 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 is a separate story. Alexis has also left Reddit. Um, mm-hmm. That happened after my, I finished writing the book. But around the turn of that, of last year, he, he left Reddit. He's still on the board, but he doesn't have a day-to-day involvement in it. Um, now, Steve Huffman, I think, is a very interesting contrast to someone like Jack Dorsey or someone like Mark Zuckerberg. I would Jack love Dorsey, to see Jack Dorsey, I should Steve say, is the CEO yes, of Twitter. Yes, Twitter. Mm-hmm. You all know who Mark Zuckerberg is. Yes, we do. <laughs> testified before Congress multiple right. times. Uh, I, I would love to see Steve up there talking about how to regulate content online and what Congress should be doing right now in terms of regulating this stuff, whether it is Russian influence on these sites, whether it is hate speech, or... Um, or whether it is simply, hey, what can they do regarding the, the flow of the flow of money online? Um, really, do you and... think he has? Uh, we've obviously seen Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg from yeah. Facebook come up there um, a lot. So much attention has been put on Facebook, partially because of the the question of how much Russian influence there was in the 2016 campaign. Do you sometimes feel like Reddit was like a toe in the water before some of these sort of bigger? players um, came under scrutiny. Like, it was oh, it was the canary in the coal it mine the or whatever. Like, yeah. Yes, right. yes, yes. It wasn't just a toe in the water. It was the going through the exact same stuff and earlier. It has been and sh- it should be a model that everyone looks at for seeing, okay, how did this evolve? How did this happen? Do, and do the they, magic thing. Do they or did they not pay enough mm. attention to it? I am not sure within the big tech companies whether they do or not. I know researchers um, love Reddit because most of 
the history of Reddit. Most every post is still available online. There are sort of online repositories of every comment. Researchers have gone in and analyzed hate speech and civil and civil discourse on Reddit since that move that Ellen Powell made to first ban the five most toxic in her mind subreddits. And they found that actually that simple action that an executive took actually improved the quality of political discourse throughout Reddit for the rest of its history. Mm. Isn't that incredible? Mm. So you can imagine the effect that subsequent bans of communities such as the, the far alt-right um, during the Charlottesville rally and and subsequent extreme political and and extremely um, conspiracy-minded or, or disinformation-spreading communities has had. I mean, that's not to say that we and they do not have a long way to go in terms of policing this stuff. I think the next battle will be kind of policing casual misogyny, policing um, the way, the tone in which people interact. And I think what's interesting and that we should all as social users look out for more is how these sites, as they grow more sophisticated, try to hone our own behavior. I think that they will be in the next few years trying to teach us how to, again, kind of how to interact, how to share, mm. how to be online. So that's sort of, I think, the next wave of, of what is free speech. How to uh, have manners. What are we being, yeah. yes, yes. Right? but what are, what are we being told to feel? What are we being told to share? And how much that influence those companies can have uh, over that. Hmm. Christine Legorio Chafkin is a senior writer at Inc. She's the author of the book, We Are the Nerds, The Birth and Tumultuous Life of Reddit, the Internet's Culture Laboratory. Christine, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You can continue the conversation about online communication at our website. We've got more about the quick rise and fall of former Reddit CEO Ellen Powell, who you heard mentioned near the end of our conversation. And we'll also dive into the political conspiracy theories that were popular on Reddit, like Pizzagate. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Wen Lei and Hannah Ubley. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.